Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. His own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. And Father, as we come to it, we, we ask that you would humble us. Would you help us to recognize that we don't have everything figured out? That we don't think rightly on all things? That we are not of the Lord, we often think those things. And yet, as we come to your word, we ask that you would remind those things, those titles, those abilities belong to you. Lord, you have sent Jesus to rescue us so that because we have peace with God, we can the words, it is well with my soul, even when everything around us is not that we can have peace knowing that you all things are well. And so, Lord, may that peace guard us this morning, the peace that, that in, in knowing that our Savior, our Advocate, the Lord Jesus, is sitting calmly and peacefully on His throne, not pacing the floor, not stressed and anxious, but ruling and reigning for our good. Would you lead us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm 42 and still a virgin, he said. He continued, I, I get told, and often it's turned into a big I can just go and pay for it and get the whole thing over with. Honestly, I feel like I'm different from other people. I'm excluded. I'm often made fun of by people who know that I'm still a virgin. To be blunt, sometimes it makes me feel like I must be a monster. I just feel extremely alone and, I guess, forgotten in this world. These were the words of a man named Chris who was quoted in a BBC article entitled, The Sadness of Living Without Sex. Even the title of this article perpetuates this narrative that we've all come to believe. A life without romantic sexual satisfaction is just not a life worth living. Some of you here are quite familiar with Chris's words because you know that pain. You know what it's like to be shown day after day that unless you're having regular sex, unless you're married, you just aren't flourishing. You know the narrative that says, I must not be enough. Unfortunately for many, the experience inside the church hasn't been any better. You've been told that true Christian maturity is to be married with at least two kids. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the writer of the text, the Apostle Paul writing this letter, is writing to a church in the city of Corinth that is confused and struggling with how to honor Jesus with their bodies. They're, they're, they're trying to navigate this, this whole Christian 
Christianity is new and it's different. They live in a culture that is hypersexualized, and they're trying to figure out how do we honor Christ with our bodies. And in chapter 7, Paul turns his attention to address how to navigate being a Christian while also being single. Especially in a city that elevates sexuality and sexual expression to just a basic human right. Especially in a city that would have said things like to have sex whenever you want with whomever you want is just plain natural and necessary. What were the single Christians to do with their sexuality? And as he comes to address it, he's addressing some people, one, that have maybe always been single, but he's also addressing people that probably never thought they'd ever be single again. He uses the phrase unmarried and widows. Widows, obviously those whose spouse has deceased, but this word unmarried, it it, it either is referring to widowers and just the, the male version of widows, or it might even be referring to those that were married and are now divorced for whatever reason. And so Paul is not only addressing those that have always been single, but those that never thought they'd ever be single again. And so as as he comes to address singles, if you're here this morning and you're not single, that's not your cue to tune out to say, well, I'm not single. Because anyone in in this audience who is a widow or is divorced probably never thought they would be single, and yet here they find themselves single. And still some who maybe found themselves needing to just walk in singleness in order to be obedient to Christ with their bodies. And as Paul comes to this, in this section of whole chapter 7, we talked a little bit about marriage last week and sex within marriage last week. Paul really only lays out two options with your sexuality. As a Christian, he says there's marriage or there's celibate singleness. Those are really the only options that the New Testament gives for us follower of Jesus. Within God's ordained means, between a husband and a wife, or celibate singleness. Now, we are sexual beings. As sexual desire belongs to the Lord, the creator and the designer of it. And Paul is essentially calling every single, single Christian within Corinth and beyond, to believe this, that Christ is enough. And because he's enough, you must surrender your sexuality to him. This is what he's calling the Corinthian church and to us today. Sexuality to the Lord. Christ is enough. It's a message that hits our ears in 2023 as quite odd maybe even repressive? Could it be that Christ is actually good enough that I might be willing to give up things as good as sex? Is Christ good enough that I might be willing to give up something as good as love? Sexual intimacy. And I think all of the scriptures uphold Christ as more than enough and everything to have him. So as we come to chapter 7, this is what Paul is calling our minds to this morning. Look with me in verses 6 and 7 where he essentially shows us 
that we are to surrender our sexuality to Christ because sexuality is not a left hand life. Now, he's given us, in the, in the, in the previous few verses, um, he's given us uh, some instruction to married couples to say, hey, within marriage, a husband and a wife are to have sex with each other. That is actually part of God's design and his command for married couples, and that's good. But if you find yourself outside of that covenant marriage relationship, the scriptures call you to singleness, and within singleness, celibacy. And he's saying you can do this because celibacy is not a less than life. Look at what he says in verse 6, or in verse 7. He says, not as a concession, not uh, uh, as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. Well, then how is Paul? What, what is Paul's status? Paul is single. He is a single Christian who is following Jesus. He is not. We, we don't have a lot of information on what maybe was Paul previously married at some point. Maybe he is a widower himself. Maybe he was married and is now finds himself divorced. Maybe his wife left him when he became a Christian and his whole life radically changed. We don't exactly know. Maybe he's been single his whole life. Regardless, at this point, Paul, but he's not only single, he's celibate. He is not expressing himself sexually in any regard. He is living a single celibate life. And for the New Testament, there really is no category for a sexually active unmarried Christian. There isn't. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but basically there are no grounds for that. Paul says, if you are to be single, you are to be celibate, as I am. Paul says about fleeing from sexual immorality, and that immorality in the original languages here is this catch-all word to describe any sexual expression outside of the covenant between a husband and a wife. Paul says flee from that. Flee from sexual immorality. We could also go to revisit the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. There's an interesting exchange that Jesus is having with some religious leaders of the day where they're coming to Jesus and they're talking about divorce. And they have a misunderstanding about divorce and they come to Jesus and they essentially say to Jesus, hey, in the us to get a divorce. What do you say? And Jesus goes, essentially, first of all, you've totally missed that. That's not what it says. What God has brought together, let not man separate. He essentially responds to them by saying, marriage is God's creation between a husband and a wife. It is meant to last your whole life. But then he says, because of your hardness of heart, the law allowed for you to pursue a divorce in the cases of sexual immorality. What Jesus essentially does is he upholds marriage to a much higher standard than anyone was in that day. To essentially say, no, 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 God doesn't command you to divorce if there's sexual immorality. No, but instead he gives it the one opportunity is if the marriage has been broken through sexual immorality, there is an allowance for divorce without it ultimately leading to adultery. And so what Jesus does in this moment, he actually upholds the marriage covenant to its highest standards, far beyond, far beyond what anyone would have held in that day. To essentially say marriage matters to God. Though there might be some cases where in the case of sexual immorality, 
It is God's design that it would last lifelong. And so the disciples respond to Jesus and they say, well, then it's better to just not get married then. Because marriage sounds really difficult. You're saying you got to live lifelong in covenant with one another, be faithful to each other, and there's, there's, no, there's no way out? Better to just not get, not get married is essentially what his disciples say. Look what they say here in Matthew chapter 19. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so by birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. What Jesus is essentially saying here is, there's marriage or there's being a eunuch. And what he means by that is, is there's celibate singleness. And there are some that have just been single and celibate since their birth. There are some that have been made that and have been castrated by the hands of human men. And yet there are some that have chosen to walk in that for the sake of the kingdom of God. But even Jesus himself, what do we see him lay out? We see him lay out two paths here for the Christian. Is the healthy expression of sexuality the way God designed it? Or to say, I... I will forego that for the sake of walking in obedience to Christ and live a life as celibately single. The Corinthian Christians were confused. Some of them were struggling with pursuing sexual immorality. And still some made the error of elevating celibacy to the highest level of spirituality. To say, if you want to be truly spiritual, you need to, be, you need to abstain from all sex. And what Paul had previously just written is say, no, 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 if you're married, have sex, right? To which all married Christians rejoiced. <laughs> no, celibacy is not for you if you are in a covenant marriage, is what he said. But what, what, he's, what he's dealing with here is, is, is much like what we deal with here. There's a, a couple different approaches. There's the more traditional approach, which essentially says this, you're nobody unless somebody loves you which makes an idol of marriage. I'd say the majority of our culture still tends to operate with that viewpoint. You're nobody unless somebody loves you. And it makes an idol of marriage. But then there's a more modern approach, which essentially says, but don't tie me down, which makes an idol of independence. And there's two errors to go. And, and Paul, as he writes about this, he won't make either error. He's saying it's not about making an idol of marriage. And it's also not about making an idol of independence. Paul upholds both marriage and singleness legit, beautiful expressions being a follower of Jesus. In our culture, and especially within church, our error tends to be to consider celibacy the less than life. But when you read the Bible... It's hard to imagine the Bible being any more positive about the single celibate life. I don't know that it could get more positive about it. It's central and main character, the hero of all of redemptive history, Jesus Christ, single celibate man. He never married. He never dated. He never had sex. 
He was the most complete and fully human person to ever walk the earth. He lived the truest and most perfect human. If the celibate life is a less than life, Jesus is subhuman. He's incomplete. We are going to overinflate romantic fulfillment. We are going to fall into an ancient heresy, which is to say that Jesus is less than fully human. Which is a heresy that's been around for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. Jesus' experience as a human being on this earth was not subhuman. It's not a less than life. In fact, the author of this, one of the main characters throughout the New Testament story, Paul himself, single celibate man, and what does he say about it? He says, I wish that you all were as I am. See, Paul doesn't just call this life legitimate. He calls it, he says in verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 8. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good to remain single. That word good, probably in its most literal sense, means beautiful. It's hard to imagine the Bible getting any more positive about the celibate single life than Jesus himself and then the guy that's leading the charge of planting almost all of the churches to also be single and celibate and to say that this is beautiful. You see, Paul, Paul doesn't view his singleness as the bleak winter as he waits for the spring of marriage. No, he says, I wish all were as I am. Because romantic fulfillment, fulfillment is not the meaning of life. Romantic fulfillment is not the meaning of life. I remember when I was um, going into my junior year for high school and I had been playing on the basketball team uh, for the first two years, been playing uh, junior varsity basketball. And as it came time to go into my junior year, it was like, well, now that you're a junior, now it's time you go to varsity. But there was a huge senior class where almost the entire varsity roster was going to be taken up by seniors. And there was like one spot left. And so all of us on the JV team, we were like, first of all, who's going to get it? And the rest of us, we're going to have to play JV as juniors. How embarrassing. It's varsity or nothing. I don't want to play JV as a junior with like maybe some freshmen on the team. So I quit. I quit basketball. I was like, I'm not, that's too embarrassing. That JV life is the less than life. It's varsity or nothing. We can sometimes view marriage that way. It's the meaning of life. It's, 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 it's romantic fulfillment is where we must go. Either that or Nothing. But if sex and marriage is everything, then celibate singleness is an absolute death sentence. But if Christ is everything, then celibate singleness can be beautiful, just like marriage can. If romantic fulfillment is everything, then this life that Paul is, is living and, and calling the singles to live is a death sentence. But if it's Christ that's everything, if in him we find all that we need, then it actually can become beautiful. And Paul has found contentment in his single life. Have you?
if you're here this morning and you're single, have you found contentment in being there? See, Paul would say in one of the other letters that he wrote in the book of Philippians, he would say, I've learned the secret of every season and stage of life. Look at what he says in Philippians chapter 4. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. For I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what is it? I can do all things through him who strengthens me which half of us were like, oh, that's the context of that verse? It doesn't mean that I can go win MVP of the NFL or I can fly someday? No. Paul's literally saying here, I have learned the secret of everything. I know how to be brought high and brought low. I know how to be in abundance and how to be in need. I know how to be content in everything. And it's this, that through Christ, I can do all things through his strength. He's learned how to be content doesn't mean you never have desires for anything else, but there's a peace and a contentment to know I have all that I need even when I'm in need because I have Christ. Have you learned that? So surrender your sexuality to Christ because celibacy is not a less than life. It's also not a cursed life. Celibacy is not a cursed life. Look at what he says here, verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. That word gift, is that, is, is that word that means grace gift. Grace gift or maybe a phrase we're more familiar with, spiritual gift. He says, I wish all that were as I myself am, but each has his own spiritual gift from God. He literally calls this a grace gift. But what is he calling a grace gift? What is he calling a spiritual gift? Well, on the one hand, marriage seems to be one. He seems to be calling covenant marriage a gift of God's grace. But then he's also saying that his own status is a grace gift. It's a spiritual gift. So what exactly is he referring to? It could be he's referring to just his, his season of singleness as a spiritual gift. He could be re referring it in that way. He, he could also be say, saying that this ability to be celibate is a spiritual gift. And in that sense, he might be saying something along the lines of, he, God has spiritually and supernaturally gifted him to not be compulsively in need to experience sex. That, that could also be what he's saying. We don't know exactly. He doesn't quite give us the clarity here. But regardless, we can't separate singleness from celibacy. So what is he doing here? Well, he's essentially saying this, that in both marriage and in celibacy, you need the spiritual gift of God's grace. He's saying that both marital faithfulness 
and celibate singleness. They aren't just white-knuckle self-mastery projects. They are open-handed, I need Jesus, I can't do this on my own surrenders. Because as he'll go on later, he'll talk about marriage is very, very hard. It is so difficult. So it's not as if the celibate life is what requires the grace empowering, the empowering grace of God, but marriage is just easy. No, he, he'll, he'll hold out both in a balance to say, neither one you can do on your own, but you need Jesus in every way. In order to live a life of marital faithfulness and in order to live a life of celibate singleness. You need the grace of God to empower you, which is good news because it means that God does not place a burden on us and simply say, good luck. What he seems to be saying here that God in his sovereignty assigns to us a life of marriage or a life of singleness and then by his grace provides grace gifts to help us walk in that. Meaning, what Christ calls us to, he will help us do. Whatever it may be. That he doesn't just give you, deal you your cards and say, I'll see you at the end. No. But he says, what I call you to, I will help you do. I will empower you by my grace. And so he's calling unmarried celibacy a gift of God which some of us here this morning might be saying, well, then if that's a gift, it's the gift that no one asked for. It's a cruel gift. Truth is, it feels cruel because we assume that celibacy means loneliness. We assume that celibacy means, we assume that it means no intimacy. Biblically, that's not true. It's not true at all. Now, there is tremendous intimacy that comes in marriage and with sex in marriage. There is, of course, tremendous intimacy that comes with that. But by no means is that the only place where love and intimacy is found. If it is, then we are essentially telling single Christians your whole life. Sorry, you'll never be known, you'll never be loved, you'll never have intimacy. To assume that intimacy is fundamentally sexual is actually a fairly Western idea and a fairly modern idea. When we go to the scriptures, we see that true intimacy is found. And it's very easy for us to just scoff at that and say, oh, cool, so no intimacy with humans, just intimacy with Christ, blah, blah, blah. If that reaction, it shows what we think of Christ. That we think that it's some kind of like participation trophy of like, fine, I can't have the real thing. I'll just have the spiritual intimacy with Jesus. The scriptures say that God is love. Do they not? Do they not uphold for us that none of us could actually know love if God himself did not exist? He himself is love. He doesn't just have love. He doesn't just give love. It is who he is. Love find its, finds its true definition in who God is. So actually, the foolishness is to try to find that in something else. 
To know Christ as your Savior and as your Lord is to know loving intimacy in its greatest possible form. That you could have a Savior that created you, that knows everything about you, even the things you don't know about you, that even knows all the things that you've forgotten about yourself, knows everything about you, all of the shameful parts, all the great parts, everything, and covenants himself to you, so much so that he dies for you, that he goes to the cross to pay for the sins that you committed, not him, to experience the wrath of God that you deserve, not him, and then promises to be faithful to you, to love you, to forgive you, to never leave you, to never scoff at you, to never stop loving you, to never stop serving you and caring for you and working all things out in your life, every single thing for your good, and to give you an inheritance and an eternity that lasts forever, so much so that your brain would explode if you caught a glimpse of it, that he would love you that much, even though he knows all those things about you, no one loves you like that, period. No spouse can ever love you like that. And this same Jesus also knows loneliness. He knows what it feels like to have a lack of human intimacy. He knows what it's like to be abandoned and alone and misunderstood. But the truest form of intimacy is found in knowing Christ and having him know you. But there is also, when we look at the scriptures, there is deep intimacy in knowing the church, in knowing brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, author Rebecca McClellan said this, when Jesus wants to show us the greatest expression of love, it's friendship that he reaches for, not marriage. Need to repeat that. When Jesus wants to show us the greatest expression of love, he talks about not marriage. In John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. There is something about friendship that Jesus knows that maybe we've missed. We see it throughout the scriptures. We see Deep human intimacy between friends. Ruth and Naomi, they love each other with a covenant intimacy. They love each other. Jonathan and David, they're probably wildly different ages, by the way, and yet they have a deep friendship with each other. And John, John is called the disciple that Jesus loved. The Bible upholds for us an intimacy in friendship. In fact, Jesus says it in Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says something phenomenal about following him. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Peter says to Jesus, See, we've left everything and followed you, Jesus. Like we have made sacrifices upon sacrifices. We've left so many things to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says this, I say to you, left house or brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or land, for my sake and for the gospel, 
who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses and brothers, sisters and mothers, and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Do you catch what Jesus just said? Jesus just said that he knows that there will be great cost in following him, that there will be great sacrifice, and many of the most costly sacrifices we will make in following Jesus will be relational. And in this case, the celibate single Christian is to give up that marriage relationship for the sake of following Christ and honoring him. And what does Jesus say? There will be nobody who's given up those things who will not receive a hundredfold. When? Now. This time and in the age to come. What is he talking about? I think in large part, he's talking about the church. He knows that for, for many, becoming a Christian will mean losing many relationships, relationships that matter. Jesus himself was very well acquainted with that. Most of his family hated him. Many Christians all throughout the scripture experience this. Many Christians today experience this all of the time that in order to be a Christian, you lose all your relationships. And Jesus, it's worth it. Because not only in the age to come, but right now I will provide for you brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, friends and family through my people. A hundredfold more. Jesus seems to be saying something about relationship and friendship within the church that frankly, I don't think we get. And what is he saying? He's saying that what I call you to, I will equip you to do. That every single one of us was forced to experience a certain amount of loneliness, right? None of us liked it. We ached because we, we understood the words that God spoke in, in the book of Genesis. He created and he said, it's not good that man should be alone. And when we think about God, we think, oh, then, then he goes and he creates Eve. And he, so he, he, he creates marriage. But that, that idea of it's not good for man to be alone doesn't only apply to marriage. It also applies to relationships and friendships. We are tragically suffering in the church from a loss of intimate friendships. Honestly, especially men. I heard a comedian say recently that one of Jesus' greatest miracles is that he was in his mid-30s and he had 12 adult friends. <laughs> we get that. We, we resonate with that, right? We are suffering from a lack of intimate friendship. Some of you are better than others. But church, we can do so much better in this regard because of the unity we have in Christ. We can experience an intimacy with, with each other that is so profound, that doesn't need the covenant bonds of marriage in order to have it, that doesn't need sexual intimacy in it. Church is a family. That's what God calls it. And when we say it's a family, it doesn't mean a place for those that have their own family. It means it's a place for everyone, regardless of where you find yourself. Single, married, divorced, widowed, with children, without children, wanting 
going to be able to have children, whatever it may be. In fact, I think Paul would point out that in some ways there can be deeper intimacy in those relationships. So he's saying to surrender our sexuality to Christ because celibacy is not a less than life. It's not a cursed life. It's also not a starved life. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. There are some who are single and burning. Deeply struggling to be celibate. Well, what then? Paul would say this. Pursue marriage. Because there's no point in saying, I'm going to be single for Christ and then burning with passion and constantly running towards sexual immorality. He's saying there's no point in that. Is for those who are able, follow one of God's gracious provisions. You see, Paul's conviction about having romantic passion is that he says, the answer to that is marriage. Culturally, for us, in the ancient world, they didn't think that way. Burning didn't require marriage, it just required sex. So if you're, if you're burning and you're desiring sex. Biblically, Paul's saying, no, 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 the, the proper outlet or outworking of that is to pursue God's ordained means of marriage. And so for those that need and for those that can, get married. But we also know that there are some that may want it but still can't. And so Paul is also saying for those that can't, you're not called to starve. You're called to fast. You're not called to starve, you're called to fast. Single Christians are simply called to, they're not called to sexually starve their whole lives. They're called to sexually fast from sexual Have you ever fasted before? It's, it's, you're choosing to give up something for the sake of something else. You don't just give it up for the sake of giving it up. It is meant to be, I am to fast from one thing in order to feast on another thing. And so for single call is not to starve, it is to fast in order to feast. Now, you've probably had the experience of being super hungry before, right? You feel, we use the phrase, I'm starving. I haven't eaten in four hours. I'm starving, right? We all know what that feels like. How awful is it when you're starving and you can't get anything to eat? It's the worst. It's miserable, right? You're like, I am so hungry, I would eat anything, but there's, I can't for whatever reason. It's miserable. But if you've ever chosen to diet or fast, it's a, it's a little bit different. You're still not eating, not eating what you want to eat, but you have a goal in front of you, right? You've set something before you to say, this is my greater aim. This is my So in fasting, it might be, I, I'm giving up something that I want to eat. I am hungry, but I've set before me a greater goal of pursuing something else. It's still hard, but it's not miserable. If you're single this morning, you are sexually fasting for Christ. 
But the question is, are you, are you actually running to Christ to feast on him? Or are you just starving? Are you actually running to Christ to say, I need more of you, Jesus? Or are you just sitting there starving? There is no human appetite that cannot be met in Christ. Do you believe that? There is no human appetite that cannot be met in Christ. Do you believe that? If there is a kind of human appetite that cannot be satisfied and met in Christ, it means that Christ is no longer ultimate. It means whatever that thing is that you need in order to meet that appetite, that's the thing that's ultimate. Christ is lacking. He's insufficient. So just be honest that that's what you believe about him. Every need, every desire can be met in Christ. Whatever he calls you to, whether it's marriage or continuing to fast, he will provide, let him provide himself. And I get to some of us that sounds like, hey, cool Christianese in theory, man. Yeah, don't have sex, feast on Christ, whatever. (laughs) But I'm serious, man, all right? Like when we read the scriptures, is not Christ held up as that good? Do not the biblical authors believe he's that good? Why don't we? Probably because we actually think something's better than him. It's not. Because here's the reality. For those that are actually doing this like Paul was here, fasting from sex to feast on Christ, do you know what they're actually doing? They're actually feasting on the real thing on the real thing. Here's what I mean by this. We talked last week and we've talked all throughout 1 Corinthians about uh, the purpose of marriage, right? God has designed marriage to be this parable, this picture of Christ's love for his church, right? That sex within marriage, what's happening there? This covenant union is I'm giving myself fully, completely, permanently, exclusively to you. That is meant to show us the way Christ loves his people. I give myself fully, completely, permanently, exclusively forever to you. But like marriage, singleness also uniquely shows us the gospel. Jesus says there will be no marriage in heaven. If that's the greatest form of intimacy, heaven's not going to be very good. Jesus said there will be no marriage in heaven. The main purpose was to show Christ. But when we get to heaven, we have the real thing. We don't need marriage anymore. We have Christ. We see him. We see his love for us. We experience his love for us. We have the reality. We don't don't need the signpost. Listen to what Sam Albury says about this. He says, by forgoing marriage now, singleness is both a way of both anticipating this reality and testifying to its goodness. It's a way of saying that this future reality is so certain that we can live according to it now. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. 
It's a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy that these things are not ultimate, but that in Christ we possess what is ultimate. If when we believe that, I think we start to understand what Paul means when he says, I wish all of you were as I am. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. That what we will have in heaven and in eternity with Christ is him. Well, I get to experience more of that now. This is not a less than life. It's not a cursed life. It's not a star of life. It's a life that says no matter what I give up, Christ is enough. I heard a story this last week as I was hanging out with some other pastors. Of um, There was a pastor who's um, church planting in the Ivory Coast of Africa. And he told us a story about this man that became a Christian. And um, after he became a Christian, this man's father came and he took this man's wife and his children away from him. And culturally, the way it works is it's, it's considered that the, the father gives to his son a wife and children. That's kind of the, the idea. And so at any point, he could take them away from him. Now, legally, you're allowed to be a Christian in Ivory Coast, but culturally, you're not. And so when this man became a Christian, his father came and took his wife and his children away. And as he told us this story, he said this, in Ivory Coast, you don't add Jesus to your life. You lose your life and you get a new one. You lose everything for the sake of Christ. And though painful, the words of Christ become a comfort that no one who gives up father, mother, brother, sister, right now in this life for the sake of me and the sake of the gospel will not receive a hundredfold now and in the age to come because Christ is enough. You can surrender your sexuality to him. Let's pray together.